Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. You can't survive and thrive unless you're able to move and move well and move freely. And we're not taught about movement. And I'm not talking dance, I'm talking about human movement and how bodies work and move. There's been a pretty consistent theme over the last few episodes, and that's of deep listening. We had Oscar talking about deep listening as a skill and something we can learn, and Katarina talking about it as a way of building empathy and trust. And this week, our guest is also talking about it with a slightly different slant, and it's that of movement and expression. Deep listening is something that I practice, and I guess a lot in this podcast. I'm listening to people deeply as best I can, and it's something I'm continuing thinking about and growing. What I like about this episode is that it moves from listening to action, to insight and to action and actually doing something. And that's something that is a bit more of a challenge for me and I want to build more into my life. So it was a really good episode for me, really good conversation for me to reflect on. My guest for this week is Luke Hockley. And yeah, he's a maker and a performer. He's doing some amazing things, creating moments that invite participation and engagement. So yeah, I hope you enjoy listening. I'm Adam Murray and this week... We're talking about the subtle disruption through the role of a performer. Well, Luke, it is very good to be sitting with you chatting. Thanks for agreeing to this conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. My first question is always about where we are and why you've chosen this place for our chat. Uh, we're in my studio in Fitzroy. I was just saying before to you that it sounds a bit like a ship sometimes because it's the old um, Moran and Cato fruit and veg warehouse. All right. So it was the first place in Melbourne where they had a massive fruit and veg kind of storage. Yeah. And this big roller door here was the door that they'd wheel the horse and carts up to. Are you serious? And then they'd bring all the fruit and veg in here. And then that there is a big goods lift and it would send the fruit and veg up and down. Yeah. And down below us is a concrete basement that's like a fridge. Yeah, cool. So it's really cold down there. But they had a all the way through to the Brunswick Street. There was a like a laneway through the building, yeah. that next building along, and they used to drive the horses in to here. And this building's owned by a man, you know, and his family, I think. And they, um, I picked the studio because it took up in uh, like about 14 years for me to find this place. And Did when, it? Yeah, yeah. When we, like through my, you know, life artistically and work and everything. And um, uh, when we found it, it was like a New York loft, like just completely empty. There was, th- there's three studios here now, but that was just one big open space. And someone who was working with me at the time was chaining a bike up outside. And um, we knew we were looking for a new space because we were just around the corner. Yeah. And she'd said to me that I wasn't going to be able to do all the things I wanted to do in the world unless I had a space. Yeah. So we we're in a tiny little office at the time. And so she was chaining a bike up, Sandy, and um, this guy walked past and said to her, oh, you, you chain on your bike or something. There's our ship upstairs. Um, uh, the cannons. 
Uh, yeah, the, right. <laughs> um, the chain on your bike, where did you get that or something? And so she kind of started chatting with him. And I don't know why, but she said to him, oh, yeah, we're looking for a space around here. And he said, oh, I've been in a building just around the corner and we're moving out after 25 years. And, yeah, well, they're going to lease it to someone. Yeah. So you should come. And she went, came here. She looked around and she called me and said, get over here now and meet the landlord. And we met the landlord that day and then I think we'd made an agreement by the next morning oh, wow. to be the next tenants. Yeah. It took probably a year and a half after that to get in here. Did it? Because those tenants moved out in six months and then we signed a lease, but we said, oh, do you mind if we put a wall in here and there? Because it's one big open space is not going to work for us because I needed to sublet space to make it affordable. Mm. And Ian said, oh, I was thinking of renovating. And so then he renovated the entire floor as you see it, which is now it's a beautiful studio. It's not like a dungy warehouse. Yeah. And so, yeah, he kind of, we kind of lost control a little bit. Like he, he renovated it the way he wanted it rather than what, you know, so it was a bit of a, but after a year we got in and we ended up here. So it's, it's just a really special space for me. So everything in here is on wheels. So I move it around according to what is going on. I um, mean, what I, the reference I was making to the ship is that the, um, all the floors, the floor of the people above us is our ceiling. Yeah. So there's nothing in between. There's no insulation. So you can hear when someone walks or they were rolling their chairs around before. It's kind of like you're in a ship. Yeah. So sorry for the ambient noise. <laughs> but yeah, so I chose this space because um, uh, it's really special for the things I make. And I think that's kind of what we're going to talk about. Yeah. And um, because I worked really hard to get it. And yeah. so I kind of feel like it's a reflection somehow of that hard work. Yeah. And how long have you been here now? That's a good question. We've been in for about three and a half years Yeah. in here. We took a five-year lease initially, so we'll negotiate the next lease soon. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Is there anyone in the dungeon? There is. Ian's nephew is in the dungeon occasionally <laughs> with his friends who all, like, do some mega performances at Doof Doof festivals. So every now and then there's, like, this... Doof Doof festival that happens in the basement while they all practice. Wow. It's like really weird. Yeah. So normally it's empty and then he, Joel, is in there every now and then and I have his number and I text him and say, actually, we're having a meeting up here. Could you be quiet? (laughs) So we've got a bit of a gentle person's agreement. Um, But I took over the basement in the, we were above the 7-Eleven over here when we first got it. And when we first got it, we thought we would get it in time for a show I was making called Fame, Fear and Hope. And we didn't. It wasn't ready, this Mm. floor. Mm. And so then we approached Ian and said, could we do the performance in the basement? And at the time, he said, yeah, no worries. But at the time they were renovating, in order to get this floor renovated, they had to put a steel beam in. like a. And so when we were, it was feral down there we cleaned it up from a complete feral basement into a theater that's not the way to make easy theater just so you know <laughs> and they were um arc welding this thing in whilst we were pumping with it it was complete chaos but anyway it was an amazing um venue like it was really really special it literally would make the most amazing underground bar like, yeah i think that's what will eventually happen yeah, to it okay. um, but yeah so there's no one full time there yeah okay yeah, special events only. Special events. 
Well, it does, just reflecting on how it feels, it feels like I feel really relaxed in this space. It has a, a calming feel to oh, it. Nice. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Some good light and plants and high ceiling and... Yeah, it's nice to be sitting here. Yeah, yeah. it's a really lovely space. It's very lived in. I've realised I haven't even cleaned it up for you. Normally I clean it up more when people come, but I had yeah. a rehearsal before you came, so it's in yeah. a bit of disarray. But yeah, it's got all the, um, these two green chairs are from the show I just did in the Fringe and all of these cushions and blankets are for campfire. Yeah. You know, two pianos because you can need two pianos. You do, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just in what you've talked about there, you've touched on a whole bunch of things. I'll just try and reflect on some of mm-hmm. them. Performance, Fringe Festival, campfire, yeah. making things you kind of mentioned. Mm. I guess you also talked a bit about work, yeah. which seems like a separate thing to all of that. Yeah. What do you make here? Let me start there. What do I make here? That's a great question. What do I make here? I find it very hard to put myself into a category of artist. Mm. So I find that question really confusing. Right. So I'm a bit convoluted in my answer, sorry. Go for it. So I was a contemporary dancer. That was my training. I went through uni, got a Bachelor of Education and Bachelor of Arts in Dance, and I worked professionally as a dancer for 10, 12 years full-time and did relief teaching in schools to make money in between dance contracts um, and choreographed a lot and got government grants. And then I made this decision that uh, a few things, that I wasn't happy with applying for grants, that I felt like I was always waiting for permission to make anything. Yeah. And so that, and not only that, I was looking at grant applications and fitting my work Mm. you know like with the tail wagging the dog a little bit it felt like as much as I'm appreciative that there is government funding I just didn't feel like I knew what I was making well enough to keep my integrity whilst I did that and I'd been making from quite young so I I think parallel to that I had a bit of a existential crisis of like why am I making dance and what is this and why choreograph and what do I want to say in the world anyhow and I'd had my youthful enthusiasm kind of, you know, um, I'd done that for 10 years and then I was a little bit like, well, is anything I'm making any good? So I, at that time I decided to study graphic design, stop travelling because I'd been travelling, you know, a bit around Australia and just stay in Melbourne and try another uh, skill set. I wasn't ever planning to leave the arts or dance. I just wanted something else that may have more income capacity. Mm. So I, at the end of that course, decided, okay, I've got a brilliant plan. I'll set up a graphic design company and become really, really rich. And then instead of buying a yacht, I'm going to buy a contemporary dance company (laughs) for myself. Yeah. So that was my cunning plan. I thought it would take 12 months. (laughs) (laughs) So that kind of started the adventure of Midnight Sky, which is the name that's on the outside of this building. And... Over 12 years, maybe 14 years, Midnight Sky has morphed from a graphic design company into a branding agency, into a brand and strategy agency, into a da 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 And now I work a couple of days a week, a few days a week as a consultant for Midnight Sky. My specialty is around um, strategic planning and narrative, mm. so how to get the strategy and the narrative to line up. I do it for organisations who are making the world a better place. 
So a lot of health services or but anyone who's doing good things, as Matt Wicking says, as defined by me. <laughs> and I also do, you know, there's a few different things I do in Midnight Sky, but I've, I've worked out that as a model, that number of days and, and using my facilitation and writing skills in that way is the right kind of foundation for me mm. to be able to then, you know, take the risk to rent this floor and rent two out, like rent two of the studios out so that I've got a studio that's at a reasonable cost for me. So that's my foundation, yeah? And then when you say, what do I make in here? Mm. So in here, the most profound thing I make is campfire. So in terms of an art piece, every month on a Saturday, I have this performance event where the people who come along are the people who are performing. So... You can come and just be an audience member and that is absolutely beautiful, needed, or else there's nothing to do if there's no audience. But when you come along, you're also welcome to share something from a poem to a story to a dance. I've had puppeteers, I've had a harp player, I've had a ballet dancer, like everything, you know, it's three to five minutes of whatever you want, basically. My idea with that was that the performing arts has, had be- has become so polarised When you're a kid, you're allowed to do it. And then there's a point that comes Mm. where you have to become a specialist and you become a professional or you stop. Mm. And that when I was dancing professionally, I could see that people felt they weren't allowed, like because I was good at dancing, they weren't allowed to dance around me. Mm. Or like there was this thing that went on and, and I think there's some weird story about if I, as a professional, invite you in, then I'm undermining my own practice or something. Right. You know, so both sides have got some weird narrative going on. We have to, because artists are so attacked in society that they, some of them, are trying to protect their territory by being elite. Yeah. You know, this is so hard, therefore you need to value it. Yeah. And I just, my experiences were that everyone wants to access, not everyone, a lot of people want to access the performing arts and they don't have permission and they're not given a safe pathway in. Mm. So I, you know, it evolved from a whole bunch of different things, but there was, I remember hosting a um, graduation event for um, the Alexander Technique School and they have a concert, you know, like a classic, you know, 10 people perform from the school, just whatever it is they've got. And I remember hosting it and having a really great time hosting it and creating a bit of a magic atmosphere. And I just stopped and was like, why do I do this once a year? Like, this is absolute magic. And I could see how magic it could be. Mm. And kind of parallel to that, I'd been doing these experiments in the theatre where I'd invite five people into a theatre with me and just say, we're going to make a show. I don't know what it is. And then we just invent stuff together. So I had these two ideas running And then for my birthday one year, I just went, right, I'm doing, it was a big birthday, I went, I'm doing a massive campfire. And I just invented this idea of everyone coming together to make a show together. And so I did that for my birthday. And it was not what campfire is now, but it was the, the seeds of this idea of a community coming together. And so now campfire, this monthly event, is for me all about belonging and that 
our ancestors shared knowledge through the performing arts. That's how we knew how to tend the crops or what was dangerous, what was safe, how we hand on knowledge about clothing, how to sew. All of these things kind of happened around the campfire and that the performing arts are a really critical part of that. It's a life skill. It's, a, it's often framed now as a, um, like a luxury and it's actually an essential thing for human beings to share knowledge in that way. Yeah. And so I wanted to create a space where everyone could come and receive that. And if they want to get up and share something, that they, that the step across that stage was just like really tiny. By the time you're in the room, it, it's almost like it's not this massive leap to perform. And that Suzanne, who's the piano player with me most months, she can get on the piano and play like an incredible classical piece of music. And that then someone else can get up and play their first piece they've ever played in public and that neither of those are undermining each other they're actually amplifying and supporting each other yeah Yeah, so that's probably the most profound thing I literally make in here before we talk about some of the other things that you make let's there's a few things I want to inquire into about what you were talking about there yeah well first of all I think about my well-being in a number of different layers Mm -hmm. and I think about some very practical things like sleep and nutrition and stress levels and connection and that kind of thing. And then there's movement as Mm. well. I think I was always a very shy dancer Mm. growing up. Dance hasn't really, although I did go to a hip-hop class at Dance Factory recently, which was a lot of fun. Bring it on. Uh, Yeah, bring it on. But, yeah, for me, movement is about, at the moment, it's about uh, kind of a workout that I do at home, which Mm. involves sort of handstands and uh, other kind of things with gymnastic rings and that kind of thing. But... I get a lot in being able to increase the type of movement and mobility Mm. that I have Mm -hmm. in my body. How do you, like, how do people get into dance when at this age? Yeah, yeah, like at our age. Yeah, at our age, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's such a great question. Uh, I mean, I think the first thing to say is it's it's like the performing arts. It's like a, it's a human right to have access to movement. Yeah. Like you can't survive and thrive unless you're able to move and move well and move freely and we're not taught no about movement and i'm not talking dance i'm talking about human movement and how bodies work and move and so your inquiry with that is like freaking awesome and your book i saw there the anatomy of movement yes yeah yes yeah i'm like totally obsessed with how the human body functionally works like i don't mean Biologically, I mean anatomically, like what is functional anatomy. So I just want to say like awesome. (laughs) And then I think, I love your question, like how does an adult get into dance or get into movement? Is that what you said? Yeah, movement, movement, but I guess with a dance angle on it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some really awesome things. There's a studio near here called Cecil Street Studio. Yeah. uh, And there's an organisation called Dance House, which is near here, and both are pretty amazing contemporary dance institutions. At Cecil Street, there's a weekly class, I believe it's on a Tuesday, uh, a contact improvisation class. Have you ever heard of contact impro? Oh, I think I have, yeah. So this is um, a movement form of what you were talking about earlier when we were chatting about improvisation. Yeah. And so it's a class that's set up to, with a certain kind of score is what they call it. Like we do this, then we do this, then we do that. Mm. And they're all instructions, but they're incredibly open. Mm. So, you know, like rolling around on the floor might be one of the beginning instructions and that's how you're getting warmed up. Yeah. So there's a, obviously I'm not doing it justice because I'm not a contact impro teacher, but there's a whole process. And I would say 
if that's of interest. Yeah. Um, they essentially build your skills up in how to do contact work. So how do two people move in space? And that's a really amazing way to learn about movement mm. because you're learning about human bodies via yours and someone else's body. And amazing. it's really, yeah, for someone who's into like the gymnastic rings or into handstands or like it's that in a dynamic three-dimensional way with another moving body. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so Google Contact Impro. It's got an amazing history and there's some beautiful videos around. Okay. There's a guy, Tom Wexler, who does a thing called Movement Archery, which is not Contact Impro, but it's got a similar vocabulary. So there are some amazing people I would say follow. Cool. Yeah, and then I would actually say Ido Portal if you follow. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. if you're going to get into movement as an adult, yeah. particularly, I mean, you know, man or woman, but he's, men often aren't given permission to explore movement. Yeah. And he is obsessed and fascinated with movement. Yeah. But it, he's almost too blokey for me. Really? Like I, yeah. I, I love what he does, but yeah. it's got a very blokey edge. But I think yeah. that for men it would be, some men it would be quite attractive because normally movement has more of a feminine, you know, mm. it's in certain ways. So I think that could make it um, just more accessible yeah. if you were first looking at movement to look at how he thinks about it and yeah. what he does. He's, obviously, you've seen I admire stuff. him a lot. Yeah. His depth and his mm. embodiment of movement is incredible. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So in his practice, he works with a lot of dancers. Right. So yeah. when you look at the workshops he runs... Yeah. There will always be someone, like if he's running a five-day workshop, there's a day that is with a contemporary dancer or a movement mm. practitioner or capoeira or something. So he's taken what I loved about dance yeah. and taken it across to a more kind of hybrid gym culture space. So yeah, I, that's why that's I love right. what he does because it takes that knowledge and applies it with strength. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that would be the first thing. Yeah, they're great. I'm... I think there's a whole kind of dance world of like, as you were talking about the dance factory and Chunky Move has contemporary dance classes for adults. That would be where I'd go if I was going to do a, like, I want to move to music mm. kind of class yep. um, or something at Dance House. There's a thing called Deep Soulful Sweats. Oh, yeah. Well. Oh, I can't remember their names, but I, I haven't done it, but I've heard about it. But they basically like get a whole massive bunch of people together and teach them a whole bunch of dance routines and then they bring it all together like, I've heard it's incredible. I haven't yeah. done it. So, yeah, I think it's going to depend a little bit on what you're interested in. Yeah, that gives me a lot to go with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think the main thing I'd say is curiosity Yeah. and that Ido portal kind of curiosity, like follow it. Yeah. Like hold it like a thread and pull. Yeah, see where it leads. Yeah. 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 Now, that was a little bit of a tangent, but a very important one. Mm. What I wanted to reflect on too was that, you know, you talked about that moment when you'd done that, you were doing that event once a year for the mm. Examinator Technique graduation mm. crew. There was a couple of other things I think you mentioned as well about, you know, like, wow, like, why don't I do this all the time? Mm. And mm. I think a lot of people have those kind of moments mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the translation or even the realisation that perhaps there's a way to translate this into something that I could do a lot more. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just want, I wanted to reflect or ask you to reflect on your journey from that realization to you're making the steps to, I guess, incorporating it into more of your life. I, I just always think life is about having a goal and managing your own behavior on the way to that 
destination, whatever the goal is or vision. Yeah. Because the magic isn't in that idea. Like the idea might be magic. Oh, I could do this monthly or whatever. Like mm. the magic is in pulling your shit together <laughs> yeah. and doing it. Yeah. Like that, that's the, I think that's what you're talking about, isn't it? It's yeah. Like, so we have humans have these ideas, you know. I think about like luckily for me being a contemporary dancer is one of the least funded art forms in the country. Right. And the university I went through was a really, really nuts and bolts. If it's going to happen, you're going to do it. Kind of get your hands dirty place. So if you're going to make a production, you had to do everything. You had to do the lights and the costumes and the, get the set sorted and do the poster. And uh, So I got trained to be like, if it happens, it's because I did it. Yeah. You know, that kind of mentality. Yeah. And so I, I really blessed that because it probably matched my personality type, but it also meant that I came out of university going, okay, well, if I'm going to make a dance career happen, only I can make that happen. Mm. So I've got to write the grant. I wrote a grant for every grant round to the Australia Council for two years before I got any funding ever. And they, were, they must have been so sick of me. <laughs> and every time, like the first one I wrote would have been absolutely terrible. And I would call them every time after I didn't get the money and say, talk to me. Like, what did I do? What didn't I do? And I ran into, I, then this amazing thing happened after six months of doing that, that I started going to dance events and people, I'd meet people and they go, oh, you're Luke Hockley. I read this thing that you wrote, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, so putting the grants in isn't only about getting money. Yeah. It's like there's a community of people who are reading them. and uh, So I suppose um, uh, this idea of like just doing it was embedded in the way I was trained. I think then the other thing I've so, – so that's – and also running a business, I learned that. Like yeah. I had a business mentor who once said to me, Luke, your thing is you need to go 80% and then publish because the last 20% that you're perfecting, because I had a bit of a perfectionist streak, he's like, no one else is going to notice it. And if they do and there's a problem, just go back and fix it later. Yeah. But that 20% is taking you three quarters of your time. Mm. And so if you get 80% up and then push it out there, like good intention and a, a nice personality will get you through. Like people will forgive you if you get it wrong. Or, and so I think I learned that early and now I apply it like in all kinds of scenarios. But I think, I suppose the other thing I learned about that, how do you get from, ah, oh, this blinding insight, oh, I should, why don't I do this all the time to yeah. something, yeah. is to create a bite-sized achievable version of it and do it as soon as you can. Mm. So I think with Campfire, for me, that was like I just called five people and said, I've rented a studio, come in, I want to do a thing. Yeah. You know, like, and I literally didn't have any idea what I was doing. But that action taught me something about Campfire. Yeah. Like, and so every time, you know, like, so then it's like, well, what's the next action? Um, sometimes I'm not ready to plan out a five-year plan for the, I don't even know what the project is. I don't understand it. Yeah. And so just, you know, like I did this project in the Fringe this year and it started with, it's so weird, someone approached me to, say, oh, we've got an ethical clothing label. We want to put some of your illustrations on our clothing. They're awesome. So I was kind of talking to them. I really like them. And I just, they're in Cambodia. And I was like, oh, who's making the clothing? And they had a really amazing setup for who was making it. But I just started going, where does my clothing come from? Mm. You know, and 
I used to sew as a kid. So I was like, I wanted a new shirt for Christmas. And I was like, well, I could go and buy a fancy shirt. But then someone's made that who I don't know who they are. And I feel like they're getting ripped off, most likely. I was like, well, why don't I make a shirt? And so I just started this curiosity about hand-making, hand-sewing a shirt. And that led to the show I just did in the Fringe, which was a piece called Listening by Hand, where I sat in this room and one woman at a time was invited to book a ticket and come and sit with me and I would ask. The performance basically went, welcome. I'm here to listen to you talk about your experiences of being a woman. You might be ready to talk or you might need a moment to think about what you want to say Mm. when you're ready. Yeah. And then I'd just wait and then they'd speak in whatever way for 20, 15 minutes and then I'd um, say back some of the things I'd heard, yeah. ask them if that was okay and then share with them how I'd been moved or changed by the experience and yeah. then the performance finished and the next person came in. So, And that happened because I was hand-sewing the shirt in public one day and I ended up having this chat with a woman. I was trying to think about how to respond to, well, me too, and, but more broadly, importantly than that, the issues of gender equity that have been around long before Me Too happened. Me Too made it apparent to a lot of people, particularly men. Mm. I was like, what's an appropriate male response to that? Like, how do men not take up more space but actually demonstrate that they're responding? And so I came up with this when I sat with this woman. I was sewing and we were chatting and I was like, oh, she needs me to listen to her. Like... I can listen. So I just really turned off any desire to be in the conversation as a subject and just was like, I'm truly here to listen. And so I would reflect back what she said and both of us were quite moved by the experience and I just kind of walked away from that going, oh, so the radical thing to do right now is to listen. And so that's one of those moments. What do you do with that? Like, that's that moment you're talking about. And so I initially dreamed up this massive project where I'd have 10 men in a room listening and tried to go out to a whole bunch of guys and get them to do it. And they were all interested. But at that moment, when they kind of it didn't quite catch, I was like, oh, well, it's, it's over. Like, it didn't work. And I had a week till I had to get the fringe proposal in. Yeah. And then I went, oh, hang on. I think I'm just too far out ahead. I think this is a really radical thing for a man to do and it's a bit risky and it could blow up like I don't know what's going to happen and I think I need to do a smaller version of it so I can prove that it is a good idea and it works and do it a bit more safely and then other men will be able to see it and then maybe the next iteration is 10 people or so I think in terms of what you're talking about of like how do you get from the seed of the idea like I put it out there to these guys and it was wrong yeah and so that's a really classic point where it dies yeah but the idea was still good. Yeah. You know, there was something important. There was still a need for something to happen in this space, I think. So I think like going, well, what's this information telling me? Mm. You know, like I can feel all emotional and upset about that they don't love me or that this work's not meant to happen or they rejected the idea. Or, but it wasn't any of that. It's like, oh, the idea's big. It's too big. <laughs> I'm not ready for that. The world's not ready. We need a smaller version or something. So you know, taking a bite-sized version. Yeah. Like the way I think about it, I think the way I used to go about things is that I thought I had to get them all right in my head first and then do the thing. And I couldn't do the thing until it was all perfectly thought out Mm. and all the permutations. Mm. But there's something that happens, there's a learning that happens in doing. 
Yep. And in doing a small thing like you're describing, mm. I can learn a lot through doing that and then I can, it can inform me of what the next iteration or what's emerging mm. it can inform me what that actually is. Mm. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. You have to talk about what you actually got out of those conversations as well. Gosh, it was an amazing, one of the most profound experiences of my life. I did a few pilots of it with friends to learn about how to run the performance. And from the first one I did, from the very first time I did it, it's like the lens through which I looked at the world changed. Yeah. So I started seeing the incredibly gendered environment that we're in mm. and how privileged men are in that, including myself. So just a list of things. One of my favourites is Marie, who helped me with the work. She, was the, she did the experience design, Marie Cochran. We did an interview for Radio National about the project and we were coming out of the interview and we were standing at the lights and there was all this road work going on and there was a woman standing there with a stop-go sign and there was the pedestrian crossing, but there was, there was literally no way a car could drive. It was like everything to the right was just road work. And we were standing, I think, as the man, the red man was on, and we were both standing there waiting. No way a car could come. And the woman was looking at us with the green sign. And we were both standing there waiting. And after a little while, because we were talking about something, and then we looked up and we kind of saw her going, you can go. And we looked up, we saw the red man, and I was like, we can't go. And then we looked at her, I was like, oh, no, we can go. And I had to kind of make myself go across the road. And then we got across the road and I looked at Marie and went, why does the red man get to tell us to stop? And then the green man gets to tell us to go. Like, why is that a man? There's just literally no reason that that has to be a man. And then the next day I was over at the corner over here at Brunswick Street and Johnson Street and there was a father, a son and a mother. The mother walked up, they were standing at the lights and the mother walked up to the three, four-year-old and said, what does the red man mean? Red man means we have to stop. And then when it goes green and was teaching him about how to cross the road, mm. I was like, yeah, of course. So, like, from that little, we are taught that men get to tell us when we go mm. and men get to tell us when we stop. And I know that, um, like, some people will just say, oh, that's silly. Like, it doesn't matter what gender it is. Well, then why isn't it a woman? If yeah. it doesn't matter what gender it is, and one little thing probably doesn't matter, but that is everything in our entire lives, yeah. like every single thing that we experience. So I suppose these conversations, they kind of woke this vision, this ability or this filter or, or took the filter off or whatever they did. And, and so therefore now I'm able to see it more clearly and advocate faster, more quickly when I see things that I would never have seen before I did that listening. Yeah. Yeah, does that? Yeah. <laughs> so, very changed. Really? Right? Yeah. yeah. Very, very changed. Yeah. Angry at times. Yeah. Angry with men. Angry at the patriarchy, which is all of us, not just men. I think I've probably had realisations about how I've been hurt by it. Yeah. You know, it's not just something that hurts women. It hurts all of us. It's mm. just that it, men also get the benefits, whereas yeah. women don't get the benefits. Yeah. Just, yeah, a lot of insights. I was quite tender at times during it all, just a little bit delicate because, mm. you know, there's a lot of listening to do and, yeah. Amazed by the power of these different women. Like, women came in and told all kinds of stories, joyful stories and, like, all kinds. Of, it wasn't just bad things. 
Yeah, so envious of the incredible relationships they talked about and literally just like visiting another view of the world that, you know, I suppose we're just not encouraged to do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. Mm. I mean, just to play on that a little bit, a quick little side actually, there's one crossing that I came across in Melbourne Uh that has a green woman and Uh a red woman Uh on it. And it's on Bridge Road yes. in Richmond, yes. corner of Basisto Street and Bridge Road. Yeah. And it's a shock to see it because it's the one. And she was, I think, she was very well known in Richmond, oh. uh, like, I don't know, 100 or a long time ago. And she played a significant role in the community. And I think the Yarra Council decided to honour that with... The image is a representation of a particular woman. Correct, oh. yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I remember hearing, reading about this in the news and it was very controversial. <laughs> yeah. It was like this controversy that they were going to do a woman as a stop-go person. Yeah, because so, people might like, get confused, right, and not know how to cross the road properly. I know. Yeah. What's, if I see a green woman telling me to walk, yeah. how would I possibly know what that means? <laughs> yeah. It's just amazing, isn't it? It is, yeah. Wow. Mm. Oh, what did you learn about, so what can I do based on what you learned? Oh, that's such a... Great question. During the project, I was talking to a good mate of mine, Chris, and he was asking me the same question early on in the project. And I was thinking about who my project was for, and I realised it was for men. So even though it looks like my performance is, oh, the only person who gets to be in the room is a woman with me, so it looks like it's a performance for women, but actually I realised that the project was to reach men who have this question mm. because I had this question. The whole Me Too thing happened and Matt Wicking called me one day and said, look, why haven't you commented on Facebook? And I was like, ooh, well, mm, like I just feel uncomfortable in general with if people put that someone's died on Facebook or like I just kind of avoid that deeply personal stuff in that social media platform. It doesn't feel right to me. And he kind of was like, okay, but like women are really taking a risk at the moment and where are we and like what's the role of man and so I kind of learnt from that that yes it is the right thing for me to do if I see a post like that to say I'm so sorry you had that experience thanks for sharing because they can't tell I've seen it otherwise Mm. and they can't tell that I support so I realised that even though that's uncomfortable for me according to my normal social media policies that that was the right thing to do there but then I was like but now what? That's not enough. This movement and this issue is so much bigger than that. And then Matt and I just started this conversation going, what can a man possibly do? Because anything we do is going to take more space. Mm. Yeah. So when I invented the project around listening, I then realised that the audience for me was other men who felt like me, who wanted to do something but didn't quite know what to do. And so parallel to that, I invented this project called I'm Listening. And I'm listening is um, a T-shirt you can buy that basically is your commitment to the act of creating space for women's voices. Yeah. And so my radical act that I'm proposing men who are allies and supportive do is they say, I acknowledge that I have had privileges because just of the gender I was born into and that I will actively step back and create space and that tangibly looks like really simple things. In meetings... The evidence says that women talk less than men or rather men talk over women. Like Mm. that's the evidence. Mm -hmm. So in meetings, just watch how much you're talking and 
amplify the woman's voice. If there's something a woman says, what they find tends to happen, it's not always, but what tends to happen is that idea gets claimed by a man. I've seen it happen, yeah. And there's an amazing thing that happened in the Obama White House. The senior bureaucrat started this process where when a woman said a good idea, another person at the table would say, that's a great idea, and name her and say, you've just said a really good idea. They started this culture that particularly when a woman says an idea, that we acknowledge it and name it as their idea. Mm. And so that's a really simple thing that every man can do at work right now. Just from here... Every time you're in a meeting, just watch when an idea comes up. Make sure you're creating the space for it. And then say, the thing you say is, that was a great idea. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is an awesome creating space for women's voices. The other things are content. So look at the content you're consuming. What articles are you sharing on Facebook? What music are you listening to? What movies are you watching? Mm. And have a look at how much male-generated content you're looking at and how much female-generated content and actively decide to share more female-generated content. Mm. It is amazing stuff out there. They're incredible. Like, of course, and you're already doing it. Like, you'll already be sharing. It's not like it's brand new, but it's just being conscious of what's the balance for me and what if I had a little bit of a policy of trying to get it to 50-50? Yeah. What would I do? And, and it becomes a curiosity about where is stuff that's being made you know, by women that is interesting and um, fascinating to me. And then I would say, like, so that's two things. The third thing I'd say is find a close friend and just literally do what I did and take them for a coffee and say, I just want to hear about your experience of Mm. being a woman. You know, I would Mm. get their permission to do it before you took them out. And, I mean, the really simple instruction I have is every time you feel like saying something, just nod and say yes mm -hmm, instead of saying something. I I know reflective listening is often that you say it back to the person. I think if they need that, you can do that. But humans are so poorly skilled at listening in my experience that we'll often put so much of ourselves even in that reflection unless we're experienced at it. Yeah. And we actually suddenly shift it around and make it about us. So the goal of this kind of 15 minutes would be that it's mainly just nodding and going, tell me more, tell me more. Like, and then say back to them at the end, is it okay if I share with you some of the things I've heard and just one or two things? I heard you say this and I heard you say that. And check in their face if that's right. They'll tell you. The minute you say it, they'll tell you with their body language or with their words. And then I also reflect back how I've been moved or changed. So is it okay if I say to you how I've been moved or changed by this experience? And if they say yes, just reach into your heart and say, well, this is, I never knew this or I see this differently now or whatever. So my male friends who have done that, so my mate Chris who invented I'm Listening With Me, he went and did it with his partner and he just came back and was, I mean, it was beautiful to hear his eye-opening. You know, like, I had no idea that my wife's experience was like this. You know, like someone he was very close to. And I think all men could really, I think we all would benefit from that as the first act. Yeah. That's my proposal. Listening is the first act. Yeah. And that builds trust with women because they have every right not to trust us at this moment. And so I think the listening is the first act that I'd say. Mm. Am I ready? Awesome. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're not ready at all. It's great. <laughs>
yeah, I feel quite moved by that myself. Like, yeah, listening to someone is such a rare event, really listening, like dedicating listening attention and time to any person and uh, regardless of who they are mm. or what's going on. It's, mm. And I think that's quite profound and an amazing first step. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, before we started talking about campfire, we yes. didn't kind of delve into yeah, yeah. the actual experience and what happens there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. before we do talk about a couple of other things, what's emerged from the campfires? Yeah. Yeah. The most beautiful thing that's come out of campfire is I've seen people in the orbit of campfire feel they now have permission to have creativity, performing arts, music, song in their life now. Mm. And so that moves me the most when I hear um, someone just sent me an email the other day saying they'd had a experience where they'd just been coming to campfire for a few months and then they were in hospital for a bunch of reasons and it was a very difficult time for them and they took their ukulele and they started just playing and singing in the hospital and this impromptu kind of campfire started happening. <laughs> yeah. around, you know, so, and for six weeks they were in there and, and they just wrote to me to thank me for inventing the idea and bringing it into their life. And, and I was like, it's so weird because there was nothing, literally nothing invented. Humans have been doing this <laughs> yeah. like forever, but we forgot. Or not, I mean, there's obviously lots of stuff around. So to me, the, the watching other people kind of go like, just stuff like a, a mate said, um, now when me and my friends get together, it's just expected that we're singing and playing the guitar. Yeah. Whereas before they'd been going to campfire, there wasn't like a permission that had dropped out of the language or something. And so to me, that's the, you know, people taking ownership again for, you know, when you're a kid, you loved like doing poetry or whatever. Well, learn a poem. Like, yeah. <laughs> that, that, it's just really little, but it's profoundly human or something. Yeah. 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 And I think you were saying they're starting, there's a bit of a spreading effect starting to happen as well. Yeah. So yeah. I'm thinking about how, so the idea, it's like amplifying it in people's lives. So people having, you know, for their birthday, they're having mates around and they're all singing and whatever. So it's like, it's just getting that going. But I've been thinking about formally, how does campfire, like it lives here in Fitzroy with me, but I've done it quite a bit with a weekly service on their residentials. Mm. And now my mate Fox, who's been doing campfire with me for a while now, he has been running them as part of the weekly service or a, what we call a family concert. So I've kind of worked out that, a campfire is like, there's a really clear framework. There's an expectation. It's a, it's a public event, so I don't control who's coming or not. Whereas a family concert is a way that someone who's wanting to do a campfire can safely do it with friends, mm. tell them all that they're trying to work out how to do this thing. And so Fox is, it's kind of a training step basically to running a campfire to yeah. see if you want to do it, does it work for you. But you're trying to do the same kind of norms so that you can find out, because um, there's some really clear things we do with a campfire, like you arrive, there's a half hour window at the beginning where people are arriving kind of in a staggered way. And it's like coming into someone's lounge room, like me or Fox meet you at the door and we you know, chaotically get your name off the list. And then there's drinks on the table and there's a musical instrument around, you're welcome to pick it up. But we need some boats folded so that we can have a set for the event. 
And so there's an instruction sheet and a table and bits of paper. And so the first person who comes in, I always ask, like, are you okay to fold a boat? And they wait for me to teach them and I say, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> so there's instructions there. And, you know, when the second person comes in, I bring them over to them and say, are you okay to fold boats as well? Yeah. Amanda's going to teach you and Amanda will go, I don't know how to do it. And I'm like, yeah, we, none of us know. Let's work it out. And so they're in an action of problem solving together mm. from the moment they mm. arrive. And it means that there's a place to go in the room if you don't know what to do. Yeah. So if someone arrives and you know them, you just end up having a chat or if you want to sit quietly, that's fine. But there's an active space where you're contributing to the event. You're standing beside people. You're not looking at them. You don't have to talk about who you are and what job you do, which is often triggering of a whole bunch of stuff. You're just, I may even forget your name, but I kind of get to know you because we're trying to fold a boat together. Yeah. So that's going on. And then once the event starts, everyone kind of gathers and sits down. And um, so there's a kind of series of rituals that are happening. And through those things, it kind of creates a particular atmosphere. And so I suppose I'm just saying that's campfire. And then the family concert has, like, the person doing it has the space to play with all of those rituals for themselves. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It seems... Like I'm reflecting on some times in my life when someone's asked everyone to bring a poem to a birthday party or something uh-huh. like that. And maybe because I've known that person, I felt a little bit like I don't want to do that because you're asking me to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't it feel, <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's kind of like I'm rebelling against yep. rebelling in yep. a way. Yep. Like it's, it's kind of strange. But it sounds like some of the things you're doing almost designed to break that down so such a great observation so the thing i worked out with campfire is that choice is the fundamental thing to people feeling safe Mm. so you don't have to fold a boat you can choose to if you want to i ask there is nothing you have to do and so in the talk i give at the start of campfire i basically have a series of norms i share and one of them is we don't nominate other people There is no requirement that you have to perform. Yeah. Your job is to be a warm-hearted audience. Are you okay with that job? If you want that job, you're in the right space. Mm. If you want to step up, that's entirely your choice. So I won't do any of the coaxing. If you put your name on the list and I ask you and you're reluctant, I'll just go, no worries, don't worry about it, do it later. Because it's your choice. Yeah. If you want support, we're here to support you. So if you want me to do it with you, I'll do it with you. I don't know the song, but I'll work it out. Like, <laughs> yeah. Whatever you need, we'll do. And so then equally, there's the only one of the other norms is there's no performance that requires the audience to participate. So you can say, if anyone wants to come up and do this with me or uh, is anyone okay doing call and response, yeah. but your performance has to succeed without that. Yeah. Because otherwise it's a workshop. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm going to get these people to do this and those people do this, and do like, which is fine. That's an awesome thing. But some people feel pulled into having to perform when they don't want to. Mm. And I knew that it was a fundamental of the event that it's safe to just come and absorb to see. And that we do a thing after each performance where the person's asked if they're okay to get a response from the audience. And then I ask the audience for just short acknowledgements of the person. Not that was great, you're amazing. Like, I saw you really involved with this part of the poem and that moved me. Mm. So acknowledging the person for their performing. And so in that way, the audience becomes active. 
Yeah. They're not looking at a screen. And so the actual warm-hearted audience is actually a tiny bridge to performing because you might speak. Yes. You know, in that moment. But you don't feel like you're being a performer. Yeah. But speaking in a group is speaking in a group. So I feel like there's been a lot of thinking about how to break some of those things about just removing choice, like everyone bring a poem or like that that idea that it's, I think it's a subtle art to get people, one of the first, I'm telling you all campfire, is that all right if I'm telling you all about campfire? So one of the, the other ones that I worked out with campfire is that I always get someone from a previous campfire to welcome everyone. So when everyone sits down, I've already given a piece of paper to someone who's been at a previous and asked them if it's all right. And and they read out a welcome, an acknowledgement of country. And and they one line that just says, tell everyone why you come back to campfire. Mm. And then they just say something about that. And so that means someone from the group has welcomed everyone, not me. Mm. And so then I step in and do my piece. But it's just really important for me that, that's setting up the idea that we're making this, yeah. not that Luke's making it. Like yeah. really subtle little things. Uh, yes. And the other one uh, before we really get going is a game we often play called Piano Bingo where people in the room are asked to put on a bit of paper um, a song and we put in a hat and we pull it out of the hat and Suzanne or Fox or Cam sometimes here or my piano player Dan, they can play anything. And so they just start playing it and... If anyone knows that we sing it, of course, I just say to people, if you don't want to sing, we're singing for you. <laughs> so you'll just sit there and enjoy the raucous singing. But it, it just becomes complete. You know, sometimes it's terrible, sometimes it's fabulous. Like, it's all things. But it breaks it breaks down the nervousness about performing. Yeah. Before we've even got anyone up on the stage, it's like... And then I literally chaotically read from my list. I just kind of look at the list and trust my instinct and go, I think we start with this person. Then I look at them and if they're not into it, I move on. But normally they're kind of up. And then me and Fox and Suzanne, I use us as kind of connectors through it. So sometimes if something really dark is shared and it's quite, you know, there's a heavy, profound moment, I might have a song that I know kind of fits there and bridges us across back to someone else because it can be quite a big, and if I don't know what someone's doing, to put them in next Mm. and they've got some incredibly humorous story and I don't know that because I don't know the content. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the main elements of it. Actually, the main piece is at the end we all pack up together and I get the group to help finish the piece, Mm. which is put things away and clean the dishes. Yeah. Yeah. It's really taking the passivity out of, I guess, the entertainment that is our default yeah. right now, coming in and sitting and waiting for this thing to happen to, to me. It. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good observation. Yeah, let's talk about some of the other things yeah. that you do. One, I first had an interaction with you that you probably weren't aware of was at the weekly service uh-huh. where you shared... There, it was probably very on in the weekly service days. Yeah, yeah, early, wasn't it? Yeah, season or something. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, and you shared about your writing project. Mm. Yeah, is that something that's still going on? Dear self, one thousand and sixty-seven days. I think I'm up to. Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. So I started writing this letter to myself every day. It started out as something else. So this is great for your ideas. (laughs) I was listening to a podcast of a series called The Power of Myth. Bill Moyers, an American journalist, and Joseph Campbell. Mm. Um, you heard of Joseph Campbell. 
he's famous for setting up the hero's myth around which Star Wars was built. And it's a classic idea of the hero or heroine going through a journey of, you know, rings of fire and all the challenges and the real challenge in the end is themselves and they realise that and then they, you know, succeed. Yeah. And in this he was talking about finding your bliss. Yeah. He talked about this thing he sees in people when he teaches at university. A student will come in and they'll be talking and then suddenly a topic will happen, some idea or a book, or and he'll see them come alive. And he knows this, like this thing, just hold on to this, whatever it is. Mm. And that he knows that that's all you can say to them is, this is the thing. Yeah. Like this is, follow this. <laughs> yeah. And that you don't know if they will or not. Like they may not hold that, but if they can, if they do, you know, that humans... So he has this belief that humans have a bliss, what he calls their bliss. And at one point in the podcast, he said, it's probably the thing you're telling yourself you couldn't possibly do. I'm not a writer. I couldn't possibly write. I remember I was listening to this on a podcast. I'd spent the day renovating a house and I was exhausted. I had my legs up the wall and I was listening to this podcast. And he said, I'm not a writer. I couldn't possibly do that. And I just burst into tears. I was like, I had no idea that I wanted to write. I I write in my work all the time. And I don't, he didn't even have a sense that I couldn't write, but his, him saying, I'm not a writer. Like, even though I can write, I'm not a writer. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's something. And then the next few days I was thinking about it and I was thinking about a guy, Seth Godin, who writes every day. Mm. You, have you ever seen his stuff yet? So yeah. he writes a small thing every day and I've been following him for a while. And I was like, oh, I couldn't do that. That's just not my personality type. Like, and I heard Joseph going, I'm not a writer. I couldn't do that. Whatever that thing you're saying, that's it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. So I called a friend of mine, Billy, and said, Billy, I want to do this writing project. I don't know what I'm doing. Can I write and send it to you just for a week? Just seven days. I don't know what it is. And she's like, sure. So I sent her an email every day with this letter. Not letter, just writing. I just wrote about whatever, just about a page. And I did it for a week. I was like, yeah, that's good. So I, can I keep doing it? So I did it for three months in the end. A week became two weeks. And then after three months, she kind of called and went, whoa, this is like overwhelming. I can't read everything. Oh, it's amazing. But like, what are you doing? Like, so I was like, oh, just let me keep writing for a while. I don't know what I'm doing, but something's coming. And so I, she put it into a folder and <laughs> stopped reading. I said, don't read them. Like, just, I needed someone there to be accountable to. Yeah. And then... I chatted to Matt Wicking. I was like, I don't know what to do next with this writing project. And um, it became, I was, I read them through. I was like, oh, it's about being a human. So I'll publish a blog called How to Human. And he was like, where might you publish it? I was like, well, maybe it's in Midnight Sky already. Or maybe it's its own thing. Because I didn't have a Luke Hockley artist website at the time. I, I didn't know where it lived. And, and he went, well, what's the most radical thing you could do? I was like, well, do both. He was like, I was like, okay, I'll do both. So for a week I published it in both at Midnight Sky and on our blog and on its own blog on Medium or something. And after one day I stopped doing the Midnight Sky one because yeah. I immediately knew it was wrong. Yeah. I mean, I published it and then did this Medium one. And after a week or two weeks I read it and I just was like, oh, this is horrible. I know what was happening in Medium they feed you other articles that relate to your article, like on the right-hand side, and they started feeding me all these self-help things, like seven ways to be the better you, how to hack your life, like da 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 And I was like, oh, this is horrible. 
like this is the opposite of the world I feel like I'm in. Yeah. And then I was looking at my life, I was like, how to human? Well, I'm telling people how to human. That's disgusting. Like, I don't want to, for me, it wasn't right. I don't want to tell people how to be a human. I had no idea. Mm. I literally don't know what I'm doing. And so then I just was going to blow the project up. I was like, this is ridiculous, useless. So I printed everything out and I read it all instead of stopping the project. <laughs> I was like, what's here? And what I realized is that Every now and then, the letters, the writing that worked the best was me talking to me. This is something I need to hear right now, not me talking to you. <laughs> you should know this. Yeah. You should do this this way. Yeah. You should have this insight. And so I went, oh, it's a dear self. Like, it's a letter to Luke. And so I think the first one was dear Luke. Love Luke. Yeah. And I was like, no, that's wrong. And then dear self was the next one. And, and from the moment I did that, it was like it took off for me as a practice because I was like, dear self, and I let you see me have that conversation. Mm. So it's a private letter, but it's a public, it's not private, it's public. It's a private letter to myself that I let people read. And so I have a little set of instructions that just say things like, um, dear self is my confidant. I can say anything I need to say. I don't need to be impressive or special or, you know, it's just down to earth. It's humorous. It's, It's just whatever I need to hear. That's the point of the letter. And so I just sit down every day and go, okay, what do I need to hear today? Yeah. And some days that's really easy. Like, I'm out. And then other days it's like I sit there and just like, I don't know. Like, the only rule I have is that I publish something. So I've done one line, dear self, I'm exhausted, love Luke. Yeah. That is acceptable. So I decided the bar was that low and that it had to be published by midnight. So I do it normally by 7 a.m., but midnight, it's, I've done it in the taxi on the way home from an event on my phone. <laughs> like, get it done is the important bit. And that, that idea of turning up every day to that practice, what I've discovered is a lot. But as a writer, it means I'm there on the day when something amazing is happening. Because mm. every now and then stuff's happening and I've got the practice and I'm ready and, yeah. and, I can, and I just write. And so then I kind of forgive myself the really boring, banal days that, I'm, that happen, yeah. you know, because I do. I can't pretend that I don't. <laughs> but also when I think about all, you know, that question I had earlier where I was like, I don't know what kind of artist I want to be in the world. Why am I making dance? Da, da, da. Like... The show I made in the basement, Fame, Fear and Hope, was about me understanding, oh, a performer's just like egotistical, the story I've been told. Like, they're just arrogant and we both want to be them and we want to pull them down. Like, that's what we do as a society. And Fame, Fear and Hope was me going, no, 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 no. The performer is not that. The performer, a teacher of mine once said to me, the Western definition of performer is from the Greek tradition. The performer's a member of the group who's nominated by the group to stand up on behalf of the group and say something of value. Mm. And she was coaching me as Kathy Madden was, is her name. And she was coaching me at the time. She was like, Luke, do you want that job? And I was like, yes. Like that's the first time anyone has ever presented the role of performer to me with the gravitas and importance that it has. So fame, fear and hope was me getting that sorted. What I worked out through that performance is that the role of performer is important and I was kind of started campfire around that time, so this notion of belonging was going on. But what dear self did for me is that 
I wasn't quite ready to be the performer in the world that I could be because I didn't have my feet underneath me. I was relying too much on other people's opinion of me for me to actually make stuff that was the kind of outrageous, courageous stuff I want to make. And so Dear Self, after about 700 days of that visiting myself every day, I, I realised something had changed in me where, I mean, I'm still vulnerable to, like, I want people to like me. And, you know, I'm a human and I'm a performer, so I have a real sensitivity to whether people are getting things. or. But something's shifted in, it doesn't completely define me anymore in the way it did mm. previously. And, and I, this notion of visiting myself every day has become like an underpinning practice that's meant that when I this year went, I need to take more action in the world with my art, hmm, this gender thing, I would not have been ready to do that really, I mean, it was really not actually life-threateningly dangerous, but really tenuous space for a man to be in. That's, you know, it's not a very, a lot of men aren't there because it's, we don't know what to do and we're going to get it wrong and we need to apologise when we get it wrong and there's all this stuff that seems easy, but not a lot of men are leaping out there. Yeah. And so the daily practice of knowing myself really became a platform upon which I was able to then leap out and be the performer I wanted to be in the world, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. There's a a few things that I'm thinking about as you're talking about that, but one is, you know, you're talking about the really, the boring days and then the profound days. (laughs) And there's something about, which I guess is, like one of the things that I've been, I've thought about from time to time about often personal development performers mm. or leaders. Mm-hmm. And there's this, like, there's this vulnerability that's, you know, vulnerability is a very important thing. And it's been talked a lot about, and Brene Brown has been a big mm-hmm. instigator of that, mm-hmm. I think, in our culture. Mm-hmm. But it almost felt like sometimes I observe that there's this performed vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. It, it's not being completely honest about what it's like for them to be a human. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's something about in you writing every day and talking about the boring bits, mm-hmm. this is what it's like sometimes to be human. <laughs> sometimes I'm not that entertaining. Yeah. Sometimes there's not a profound thing going on. Yeah. Sometimes I'm bored with X or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is so true. It's so true. It's like I can't shape a version of it. Yeah. You know, that, that glosses over the... Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There's something very important in that because sometimes a, a thing that gets published or, uh, you know, designed for, for people to read, like I'm very, what I guess I want to try and do in my life in a way is not make it harder for people to live mm-hmm. because I'm being a little bit dishonest about what it's like for me to live. Uh-huh. And setting up a, a falsity that people think that it needs to be like that for me yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. Do you think about that kind of thing at all? It's yeah, really interesting. I find it odd because I share so much about what I'm failing at because anyone can read yourself any day and yeah. find out anything. Like there's yeah. so much stuff in there. And yet I sometimes realise that People think that I'm very organised or able to get lots of creative things done or like they, they, they kind of view me as if, you know, like the, the show this year won an award. Yeah. Now that's, I mean, probably the second award in my entire career I've ever got. And I kind of, you know, 
for that award was like, that is for every show that I did that no one came to or that was a bomb or that was brilliant and didn't get an award or like that, like that, that award is not for that moment. Like, and yet people see it as, as if that project's now so successful and like the way, you know, we're taught to view those things through a particular lens and, um, and it can, yeah, like, I mean, this is what people talk about in terms of talking about failure and, you know, like what did work and what didn't work. And um, yes, I think about it. And I don't, I, I feel like there's so much out there with dear self that surely people can see that I'm a complete mess most of the time. <laughs> but I think the reality is very few people are reading every single day all the time. They're dipping in and out of it or they're, I, you know, I, I package it into different packages at times. So, you know, I'm editing it in a yeah. way. I think it's a, one of the things we tend to do to stop ourselves is look at others and go, well, they're so good at it, I couldn't possibly. Yeah. And, like, the thing I'm desperately trying to do with Campfire and with, like, is say one of my favourite moments is um, when, you know, I kind of go around and go, have you got something you want to share? And someone goes, oh, not really. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, what would be the really bit? Like, <laughs> if, if you had the real, like, what's the little thing? There's something, oh, I used to read this poem at school. And I was like, oh, what poem was it? Oh, it's this, and I'm like, let's Google it. Is it this poem? Yeah, that's one. Do you want me to print a copy out for you? Yeah, oh, there's a copy in case you feel like reading it. Come back 20 minutes later. Oh, have you had a look at that thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking of that. I'm like, well, do you want to do it? Like, and that, that, that process of just kind of like going, when they said, not really, yeah. they actually said, please, please help me read this poem. Yeah. You know, and the, the, the enabling act rather than like, oh, Luke's such an amazing performer, I could never be like that. Like, my job at Campfire is to get up and perform and say, I'm just learning this song, so I'm going to probably stop and start again and, like, and that I model mm. the process of being an imperfect performer. Like, I do it as well as I can. I don't fake it. Yeah. But that is okay if I get it wrong or I need to start again. Or... So I suppose that's me trying to get off the pedestal. Yeah. And yeah. make performance an enabling act rather than a like, oh, now you're over there and I'm down here and you're amazing like that. Yeah. It just doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't interest me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, cool. There's probably a, only a couple more questions that I have. That's a lot. I feel like I've talked a lot. <laughs> I think this will, will be really overwhelmingly bored by me by now. I doubt it. <laughs> and it sort of ties back to even the first question, well, the, the, one of the first questions that I had for you, and, it, and maybe it's uh, not a question you can answer, and that's okay. But it, we talked about, you know, what do you make in this space? Mm. And you said that's a very hard thing to do, like to mm. put yourself into a category, for example, mm. or to mm -hmm. describe in general terms. But I wanted to try and tease something out there if I can. But yeah, in looking at retrospect, I suppose, and not really knowing what will emerge, you know, from here on in your life, what you mm. end up doing, but... Is there a thread there or a theme of a thread or some kind of story that you can, that you see? You're mm. like, yeah, like that, that is the, at the moment, I see that as the, the important thing that I'm trying to bring into the world as an artist. Mm. Is there? Mm. Yes, I literally have a sentence. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of see this as my position description, like yeah. as an artist. What's my job yeah. as an artist? And so something around um, to make things that, inspire people who want to change the world, make the world a better place, uh, to have self-love, belonging, insight and action. Mm. That's the thing I'm doing. Yeah. 
you know, make the world a better place through those self-love, belonging, insight and action. Yeah. Mm. Those things, I'm just thinking about them now, are things that I suppose in many ways are not that common. Mm. Self-love is mm. a big challenge. Mm. Belonging, I guess maybe one of the, the biggest problems that we're facing. Mm. Uh, I suppose, I don't know for sure, but a, a lot of uh, mental health is being tied back to that very thing. And I can see, you know, you're doing that through campfire. Mm. Self-love seems to be coming out with dear self a lot. Mm. Yeah. Action, I can see that coming out through, what was the performance called? With yeah, I'm uh, listening. listening. Listening by hand and I'm listening. They're two different pieces, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose insight there a little bit mm. as well. Mm-hmm. What's emerging for you next that embodies those things? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. There's something about this clothing, sewing, uh, humans making things that is already there, but it's like that's, that's curious to me. And so I know to follow mm. what's curious. I'm interested in how... I see my partner gardening and I'm like, okay, that's a survival skill. I can see how if you can grow food, you survive. And it's only really recently that I went, hang on, if you don't have clothes, you die. Like you need clothing to protect yourself. And so my skill with sewing is a life skill. It's a survival skill. So there's something around that that I want to keep playing and being curious with. Mental health, I think, I think it is rapidly becoming like apparent how radically unacceptable it is. The other day I saw a man on the street over here and he was clearly having a psychotic episode. He was not violent towards anyone, but he was yelling at nothing and he was not well. And like, what do you do? Like, what's the appropriate human response at that time? I can't approach him because I don't feel safe enough to do that. Everyone just is walking by and ignoring him. So I, like, was like, okay, I'm going to call, like, the mental health team at St. Vincent's, Googling things, trying, that seemed to be the thing. And they were just like, well, yeah, you can't speak to us. They didn't even put me through to the mental health team. You can't, don't speak to them. You just need to call an ambulance. And I was like, holy shit, that just seems like an extreme. Don't you want to call that for life and death? Like, it seemed like break a rule. And when I called the ambulance, they were great. They were amazing. But apparently that's what you do. Mm. And they will assess whether this person needs to go into hospital. Or to... But I was like, why is there not like a mental health ambulance? Mm. Like that I know it's okay to call that mental health emergency team and that their job is... So, so I, yeah, sp- wow. I suppose I'm like, there's something about the way we are treating people with mental health problems that I'm like, it's not good enough. I, don't, I want to respond to the same way I was thinking about gender. So I don't know what that is. Yeah. Um, the gender project, I think, will go for quite some time. Yeah. Like, that feels like it's the beginning seed of, yeah. But, yeah, in terms of, like, the new seeds, that they're the two, I think, the sewing and the mental health question, Yeah. that is. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. And do you have that first step in mind yet about what? There's something about homelessness with mental health and something about people on this like, uh, I'm frightened of talking to people in that space and that makes me think that's probably a really good thing yeah. for me to come to terms with and do. 
I mean, the thing I've just been thinking about lately is that I think listening is actually my art form. So in all the different practices I do, the ability to listen to myself, the ability to listen to the room at campfire, literally sitting and listening. So there's something there, like, I don't know, that's like the gestational seed. And I'm also with the um, Listening by Hand project and I'm listening. We I audio recorded all the conversations, so I'm looking at running workshops for men to sew their own shirt for three days and across those three days they listen to audio from the performances and they spend time listening to each other and building some important skills in understanding, you know, that and then obviously going out in the world and listening to women. So I think there's something or a podcast with the women's stories, obviously with their involvement. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I think they're the kind of seeds. I'm just not quite sure which one, what order. Yeah, cool. Yeah, exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Something's coming. Yeah. (laughs) Last question, and it's uh, it's tying back to the theme of the podcast and uh, of subtle disruption, but also thinking that about yourself. Mm -hmm. You've kind of touched on it in different ways, in a few different ways, but maybe there's something else you can think about. But it's about, you know, a small change that you've made in your own life that's had a significant impact or a, mm. a long-lasting important impact. And mm. you, I mean, you have talked about a few, but is there yeah. something else there that comes to mind? Yeah, it's really banal, but it's not. I'm an Alexander Technique teacher, so I did the teacher training, which is three years, yeah. and it's all about habitual pathways and having choice to cooperate with the way your body's designed. Mm. That's the teaching. And so you're always identifying paths in yourself, like things that you do that like just there because they're there. And what would I do if I had a choice that might be more constructive for me? And during the course, I one day realized I was at the dishes at the sink, the dishes. And I was, I just saw this story I was telling myself, which is I shouldn't have to do the dishes. And even though I was doing them because I knew it was my turn, I was resenting doing them. And I just kind of stood there and listened to the story a bit more. And it was like, you know, they're all sitting in there. I'm doing them. Why should I? And, And yet I knew it was my turn. Like, it was totally like no one was making me doing them inappropriately. And at that moment, I was like, okay, I've got some narrative about the dishes that is not helping me. I want to know, can I become the person who loves doing the dishes? Like, is that possible or is it just not in my nature? Because I didn't believe it was in my nature. And so I did this thing where I just went, whenever there is a dish in the kitchen, that's my dish. And I'm going to lovingly clean it. Mm. And that's my job from now on. And so I just entirely transformed my relationship with dishes. Wow. Now I no longer look at them and have any sense that I shouldn't have to or, like, I often will do them as a way of cleaning my kind of subconscious. Yeah. Like, I, and so it it was quite a profound but incredibly subtle, like, no one else really even knew that was going on. But I think it taught me how much the narrative is I'm in control of it but it's not necessarily easy to change. Mm. And so that it takes a really conscious, and that action was such an easy, simple one, happened so many times a day, you know, that I could visit that conversation again and, and see myself say that same thing and go, oh, do I want that? No, I'm the person who owns that dish. Yeah. That's my dish to clean and I will do that. I don't know, it just really, I feel like I took control of that narrative, not just for the dishes. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Luke, thanks so much for sharing. No, thanks so openly. And it's 
it's been excellent to have this conversation with you. Thank you for doing it. What a great podcast. Ah, you're welcome. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests on this show. So if you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.